Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Look out, it's only films to be buried with. Hello and welcome to Films to be Buried with. My name is Brett Goldstein. I am a comedian, an actor, a writer, a director, a man recording this under a duvet, and I love film. As Marcus Tullius Cicero once said... A room without books is like a body without a soul, and a DVD collection without School of Rock in it makes no sense to anyone. Yeah, agreed with that actually, Cicero. Nice one. Every week I invite a special guest over, I tell them they've died, then I get them to discuss their life through the films that meant the most to them. Previous guests include Jamila Jamil, Catherine Ryan, Ricky Gervais, and even Ged Lambles. But this week... But this week, my special guest is brilliant writer, podcaster, and journalist, Dolly Alderton. Get over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein, where you get extra guest questions. You get a video of the episode whenever I could do it. You get sneak peeks, you get recommendations, you get all kinds of stuff. But best of all, each guest tells the Patreons a secret. This week, you get the video of the episode and quite an incredible secret from Dolly Alderton that I will never tell you, and none of the Patreons will. And the only way to find out is to join us at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein. Last thing, get over to my Instagram at Mr. Brett Goldstein. Get into my fake reality TV show, Lone Island. I'm releasing it about once a week. It's probably the best work I've ever done. So, here we go. Dolly Alderton is the co-host of the High Low podcast, a journalist, and now a novelist. I had never met Dolly before. We've been trying to record a podcast together for about a year. She'd been writing her thing. Everything got busy. Everyone got busy. Anyway, we finally managed to do this. I had such a great time with her. I think she's one of the greats. I think this is such a brilliant episode, and I'm so grateful to her for doing it. Anyway, that is it for now. I very much hope you enjoy episode 95 of Films to be Buried with. And welcome to Films to be Buried with. It is me, Brett Goldstein, and I am joined today by a broadcaster, a journalist, a presenter, a podcaster, another podcaster, a comic mind, a novelist, and a non-fictioner, and one of the great minds of her generation. Please welcome to the show, the brilliant Dolly Alderton! Oh my God, that was so nice! What a list. <laughs> Non-fictioner, I really, really enjoy it. And I think that's 
that's way less annoying sounding than memoirists. Yeah, non-fiction sounds pretty cool. Yeah. I did invent that on the spot and now I think it should take off, please. I hope you put that <laughs> under your memoirs. Your memo- memoirs. Maybe I came up with it because I don't know how to say memoir. <laughs> a non-fictioner. Yeah, non-fictioner. Thank you for doing this, Dolly Alderton. It's lovely to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Also, I need to thank you because not to show you up too much, you got the time wrong yesterday when we should be recording. Yes. And I cannot tell you how much I live for those moments in life because I'm an extremely flaky person. <laughs> There's nothing I love more than someone being late, mm. someone getting a date wrong or someone cancelling on me because I just stock it up. Uh, yeah. And I'm so magnanimous because people have given me so much shit over the years for being flaky. There's <laughs> nothing I love more than someone fucking up a bit and me being really magnanimous yeah, about it. Yeah, you were it. so magnanimous about it. My God. Maybe I even thought, a bit too much. I thought, something's <laughs> up here. She's definitely late a lot. <laughs> exactly. When has anyone ever been disappointed when someone was, someone cancelled like a plan? It's so funny though. Some people I think do do really, really look forward to it. It's so... <laughs> <laughs> to stuff. To stuff. Yeah. And it's like, it's taking me such a, a long time to realise that, like, lots of people will be really disappointed if you, if you cancel something and they won't feel immediate, really. And also the thing that I've realised that's taken me a long time to realise, I'm realising it so much in lockdown, a lot of people just love to a good old natter all day, every day. Mm. So like I've noticed in lockdown, I have so many friends who just want to WhatsApp all day and then they want to FaceTime at night. And I think maybe it's because they're missing being in an office. But you know, those people like when you go to a wedding or you go to an event and they want to get the train with you. Oh yeah. That does my natting. Yeah, I know. I'm like, I need, I need that time to prepare myself for the time I'm going to be spending with you. That's what the train's for. But people love, people love people. <laughs> <laughs> people have got a real fucking problem as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Dolly Alderson, you have just, because we did try to do this a long time ago, but you couldn't because you were writing a book. Now, was the book a non-fictioner? Because <laughs> you've just finished it. Congratulations. Is Thank it an, you. Is it a non-fictioner? It, it was a fictioner. Ooh. No, fictioner. Yeah. Your first fictioner? Yeah. Yes, my, <laughs> I really hope this sticks. Yes, that, that was my first fictioner. And uh, I'm so sad it's over. Really? Yeah, it's such oh, a wow. weird feeling, which I haven't had before. You know, when you when you write fiction, it is this like, it gives you this like second brain, like like this sort of portal into this other mind with this other whole world and all these other people and all of their psychologies. And it's just like such a holiday from the fucking drudgery (laughs) of of your sort of mad thoughts and it's just like a fail-safe way no matter what was going on in my life in the year that I was writing it if I could like sit at my desk with a coffee and then go into the world of that girl and all her friends and her family it was just it's so it's so like it really transports to you um, in a way that I think I, the way I'm talking about writing a novel now, if I'd heard it before I wrote a novel, I would have found it so fucking annoying. <laughs> no. I just really hope this book doesn't fucking bomb because I just feel like, <laughs> I just feel like I found, I found a thing I really, really want to do. I only want to do this now. Oh, really? really? Like the thing I used to hate 
hearing novelists say is like, I hated the whimsy around like the creativity of a novel, which actually I found is like quite strategic and quite formulaic, a lot of it. But there is, you know, there is a degree of magic when you're, you know, like I used to hate when novelists would be like, oh, a character came to me. I didn't decide a character. They kind of came to me and fucking blow me down. That's exactly what happened with me. And then what happens is they take on their own, life and then throughout the pages they turn into someone you hadn't anticipated and it's just like a mad alchemy and it does feel like it does feel like very very different to anything that I've that I've created before. I want to ask you loads about this but I won't go too long about it. Did you have like set hours a day that you would write or would you write whenever you whenever it came to you or like how did the actual physical getting it down? I, I was quite strict I think I, I had to be because after the after my memoir came out, the nonfictioner, I found it really, really difficult after everything I know about love came out because yeah. it just took on such a so it accelerated so fast uh, and it, and got quite big in a way that I hadn't anticipated. And with a novel, that would have been amazing, but with a memoir, that just becomes like a trickier thing to negotiate because it's like you have to then go out and sell your experiences and who you are. And then you have to have those things like kind of commodified, cashed in on or criticized. And it's very personal when it's like things that have happened in your real life. So after I was so burnt out at the end of all that, and I had like a bit of a meltdown and I said to my agents and everyone I worked with, I was like, I just have to have a year of writing everything else. I can't do lovely Brett Goldstein's podcast. I can't do all the stuff that, I love doing that's often about like meeting people and talking. I just can't do that anymore. So because I kind of cleared the decks for a year, every day I would just sit at my desk and go, yeah, nine to five really with it. Right. And I loved it. I loved the structure of that. Did you, do you write with kind of structure? Yeah, I do. I do. I write eight hour days, but what I don't do is stop as in I'm, I'm less disciplined as in if I have an idea it, very late at night, I'll then go down, go and write it. I get very scared of losing ideas when they come. Yeah. Like, I think um, you should grab them. And I know people who are like, no, you should wait till nine the next morning. If it was good enough, it will hold. And I'm like, no, no, don't fucking leave it. Are you mad? I totally agree with that notion. And actually, someone who's really interested at interesting on this is a woman uh, Elizabeth Gilbert who wrote um, yes. Eat, Pray, Love and lots of amazing novels and she wrote a great book about creativity and she has this idea about creativity that basically human genius doesn't exist mm-hmm. genius is in the ether and amazing ideas are floating around all the time looking for their perfect collaborator and once that once it chooses you and it and it chooses you to be the channel you have to grab it and you can't that's a gift that, that that's been given to you and i think i sort of agree with that i honey percent agree with that i think it's entirely i i think the best stuff i've done without being a total knobhead I sound like such a novel, but I do actually. No, 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 we're, go- we're going there. Come on. <laughs> but like that, that you're, that something else is, is you're just, I can't remember who said it, but like you always meet people who say, oh, I couldn't write. And I do think everyone can write. The difference between me and someone who doesn't write is I sit down to write. That is the Definitely. difference. If you, yeah. if you sit down, if you're there for the thing, then the thing will happen, but you have to be there for the thing. And what I find with most of the stuff and why I, worry about rushing things sometimes is 
do you not feel like uh, that the thing is already there? You just got to find it. And so it's sort of like a sculpture. You're chipping away at stuff and you remove stuff. And I've always had this thing where I remember writing something years ago and it didn't have an ending. And one day I was in the shower and then suddenly I had the ending. And when I put the ending in, the ending had always been there. Like it had already been plotted all the way through it. I just didn't know it yet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I I completely know. And and it's almost like on the kind of underside of your brain, your brain has been collecting all this inspiration and information and ideas and moments for that project that you weren't even aware, like you're stockpiling all this stuff for it that you're not even aware you're stockpiling. And actually another thing that Elizabeth Gilbert said that I think is so true, that there's like quite a similar feeling when you have that like, sense of genius and like the sense of of like a really brilliant creative idea start to form within you that it is very similar to the feeling of like the falling in love for the first time like the beginning of a love affair where you're like completely obsessed by it you want to talk about it to everyone that you know you're sort of like anxious but you're also really excited you feel like you have this new confidence that this new thing has given you you feel like you've got purpose you feel like Everything, everything you see in the world then goes through the filter of that thing in the same way it does yeah. when you first fall in love with someone. And I think that, and the, the thing is, I should also make clear, I, that doesn't happen with every creative project. Like, I think I've had that yeah. a handful of times in my life. But it's just like bliss, isn't it? When, it? when you first kind of land on something like that. Yeah, that's so nice. Did you, did you plot the whole thing out in advance? Like, had you sort of storyboarded it or, or did you write as you went? Yeah, I was really, really, uh, I did like three months of planning. But so much of it, I had exactly what you had where, so I actually initially was going to write a whole different book that I'd been planning for about six months. And then the day it was due in, it was on a Friday and my publisher, my agent had been waiting for me to pitch this idea for ages. And the other idea that I had was completely different characters, completely different world. It was in a third person narration. It was very different. And it was like, I think the reason it was taking me quite a long time to plan is it was something, it was quite like thematic and it was quite, it was quite like not labored. I was, I was thinking a lot about what I wanted to say and what the world was and what the kind of take home was and what it represented. And then the day it was meant to be handed in, I was reading it back and I was just like, I'm not, something isn't quite right about this. And I don't know if I need to, if I have to be with this for a year on my own and then completely out of nowhere just sitting at my kitchen table I was like what else would I like to write about I just thought about ghosting which is one of the kind of storylines of the book and then just like you said when you sat came out of the shower I just sat on my laptop and I'd like I had a whole book I had four different storylines I was like right the dad's gonna have dementia she's gonna get ghosted and it just all completely and then I just rang my agent. And I was like, I know that I'm due in the proposal for this other book. It was called Two and Four. And I said, can you just give me a week? Because I've just had another idea. And I, re- I was like, I'm not going to write a proposal or a plan. I'm just going to write the first kind of three chapters. And then I just went away for a week on my own. Turned my phone off and just wrote the first three chapters. And then a week later, I sold it. That's fucking brilliant. It's weird, isn't it, though? I just immediately was like, this is what I have to write now. It's the magic. You were there for the magic. Yeah. You had sat down. Yeah. Do you, uh, uh, well, the last question I'll ask you on this, because otherwise uh, people will be like, is this a book podcast? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, can be, sometimes. <laughs> I think people find it very difficult to separate 
the writer from the characters in the story, like how much of it is consciously autobiographical, how much of it is 100% not, and how much of it do you... Would it annoy you if people go... Oh, so is this you? Is this all you? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do think that will, I do think that will annoy me, and I do anticipate that will happen because I'm known as a non-fictioner. Yeah. Um, but, and I also think that there's something about the female female creativity where we still think that a woman um, telling a story is an outlet, a therapeutic outlet, whereas a man telling a story is like a great, great creator. imagine imagining yeah like there, there there are so many like I would read a book or a script that a man wrote and what my first instinct isn't like what ex-boy what ex are they talking about right. or who pissed them off or, like who didn't want to sleep with them or like who do they want to be with or yeah. who are they angry at whereas I think we still think that that women writing is like them sort of letting rip um, so I think that will kind of annoy me, but yeah. I've done a couple of like quite childish defensive things within the book to really brattily stamp my foot and make a point to people that it's not about me. Right. One of which is I've like, she has experiences in the book of things that I've never experienced. And I had to like research and go interview right. people about, I've made her quite different to me. I think the thing that's different, that's difficult that I'm sure you have when you're writing scripts is the characters will all have the same sense of humour as me. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's hard to hide your sense of humour or do a different one. Yeah, yeah. So, but you know, the fact is, I really do believe, and I've really learnt with novel writing, because when I first started writing it, I was like, I really, I want to really stretch myself. I want to prove to people that I'm more than just a journalist or a woman who just writes, you know, Mm. about herself. I'm going to try really hard to just like, to just like create things from nothing and nothing comes from nothing. I've realized like when I first started writing the book, I just started seeing someone. And when I go back and read those first, the first half of that book, he is everywhere in it. And it's nothing to do. He's not a character in it or anything. Mm -hmm. We would be, we'd go out for dinner and he would tell me about when he was at university in a very provincial, you know, a provincial British town and then the next day, without even realising, I go back and read the pages. I'm like, oh, there's someone who lives in Wells. Like, <laughs> yeah. where did that come from? So I do believe, like, you're going to be in everything you write in some way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, do you know Philip Roth's theory on fiction? He said, all fiction is non-fiction. The fiction part, he says, everything I write is true, as in... The situation is true. It's a, it's a thing that happened that I heard about or or that happened to me or that happened to someone I read in the paper. All the stories are completely true. The fiction part is getting inside their head, is having the empathy for the character. That's the fiction. That's where the work exactly. is. But the stuff yeah. is all true. The stuff is non-fictional. Yeah, that's, that's where you have to use your imagination. Yeah. Oh, Dolly. Fuck. I've forgotten to tell you something. Yeah. Oh, man, this is mad. Oh, God, this is so mad. Uh, I don't know how you're going to take this. I should have said, ah, oh, I could kick myself. Well, I'm going to, I'll just say it. Shall I just say it? I'll just, ah. Say it, go on. Uh, 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 you've died. 
You've died, darling. Oh, shit. After all that. When? You tell me. How did you die? So, when I think about the the things in my everyday life where I'm like, this is going to kill me, I can feel this is going to kill me. If I'm being totally honest, Brett, it's like reading people slagging me off online. So... That is an awful way to go. So I think that in the coroner's report, (laughs) I was the first, like, known case of Mm. what will probably be known as, like, extreme paranoid narcissism. Right. Where I just, I read one Amazon, one star Amazon review, too many, and I just, head on the keyboard, just dropped dead. Wow. You suffered, you had EPN and just internally combusted? Yeah. Wow. I just couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't take it anymore. Totally get that. That's an awful... <laughs> that is the worst death we've had. I'm horrified by that death. But do you know what I mean? It is I a do. feeling sometimes when you're like, oh, this is going to kill me. This obsession that I've got with, like, how people are receiving my work is going to kill me. Like, how do I get rid of it? Cause it's going to kill me. So one day I just did. <laughs> and finally, I was free. Do you know how, how old you were? How old you were when EPN hit? I think it was fairly recent. I think it was during lockdown. I think it was me going on Amazon straight onto the one stars. Shit. Well, maybe, maybe it was actually like, maybe it was doing the lowest of the, maybe it was me putting my name, not my handle, my name into Twitter in the, in inverted. So all I do is I get, I get the unscavenged criticism. I think that, that was it. When the coroner found that, they said she did bring this on herself. That is, <laughs> that's very sad. Wow. Dolly Alderson, do you worry about death? Uh, I do, yeah. I've got a bit of a death obsession. Yeah? Yeah. So I think this is the key. And actually, I think this is like, most people I know who are really frightened of death aren't people who are frightened of death. They're people who really love life. And they're, and they're people who often are, are quite, have quite an appetite for achievement and experiences. That's a very good way of like basically praising myself and making me not just sound like very neurotic. Um, but because actually dying itself doesn't bother me. I don't think I believe in an afterlife. So being here will be fine because like my friend always says this thing where he's, when I've told him about my death anxiety, he's like, think about like the 1700s. How chilled out were you then? It was the best time of your life. You were so relaxed about everything because I didn't exist. So like not, not being here, I'm not worried about blackness and nothing because that was fine before and that will be, be fine again. It's about, it's about FOMO. Yeah. And also the, I think that the horror, something I've realised kind of recently that does, I think, it, I can't work out if this has made it better or worse, is the realisation that it doesn't, that you, no matter what you do, it doesn't matter that much, as in people will get over it. Your yeah. your death, like people yeah. get over everyone's death. So yeah, like like think of those massive people that we like for a week on Twitter. It's yeah. all we talk about, and like then you know they replay that person's desert island discs on Radio Four, and then we just like never fucking talk about them again. We never mention them again. <laughs> And that, and that's the most important people in the world. And that's the ones who've really. That ain't going to be me. That's the ones who've really made a dent. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Do you think there's an afterlife? Do you know what? I'm flirting with reincarnation. Oh yeah. Because. Because of the chilled out time you had in the 1700s, you were just talking about. Well, 
I think that this goes back to my FOMO thing where I'm like, if I knew that I get another go, I think I believe in reincarnation in the same way people kind of semi believe in heaven to make themselves as a comfort. Because if I know like, oh, in this life, I might not get to be able to be all the things and do all the things I get to do, but I'll just do it on the next go. Yeah. Like there's something about me just, I think about that quite a lot. I'm like, well, there could be reincarnation. And then, you know, I'll be married to my childhood sweetheart in the next, you know, like all the things that I'm like, oh, wouldn't it have been interesting to have had that as a life? Wouldn't it have been interesting? And that's what happens as you get older is that all the things that you thought you might do just one by one sort of close off. And I think that's so unbearable to me that I have to be able to think that a parallel universe might exist where I might be able to do it. I like that. Do you believe in an afterlife? I do believe there's something going on. And part of it is all the the, the, the all the stuff. Not to be too... I don't want to be too scientific with you. I don't know if you can follow me. You're it, listening but. to Spirituality <laughs> Investigated with Brett Goldstein. Something going on, isn't there? Uh, but, but I... Because I... I've talked about this on here before, but I do... I just think there's too much magic. All the stuff we were talking about with your writing and everything, it's like yeah. there's a bit of magic going on. Like, that isn't... Yeah. That isn't nothing. So... Well, here's the thing, Dolly Austin. Good news. There is a heaven. Well done. And you made it. You made it. You can go back anytime. You can do do one of your 1700 lives or (laughs) whatever whatever you're looking to experience this time. But in this heaven, they're obsessed with films. Just like you, right? (laughs) Just like, so I... I, I, Just like you. I've got such an insecurity about me not knowing enough about film. There are so many films I haven't watched. And I get nervous. I get nervous around people who love films. I am quite intimidating. But here's the thing. Isn't... I'm more... I listen to uh, the Hilo, the Hilo Pod Pod. And, um, Do you? I think you might be the only man in Britain who does. Well, I find that intimidating because there's poems, you know, fucking writing stuff. Like, films is... Compared, compared to poems... Films aren't intimidating, are they? I couldn't tell you what a poem meant if you put a gun to my head. Do you know what it is? There's something about, like, you know when you when you see those, like, 100 greatest films of all time? Mm-hmm. I'm always amazed at, at how few of them I've watched. <laughs> I can't believe, like, massive... Like, I've never seen any of The Godfathers. Um, do you know what? What you don't know is that gives you extra points on this podcast. Oh, really? Yeah, because everyone says Godfather's the greatest film and what that means is you're not going to say that, so I'm delighted. <laughs> unless, unless now I've given you the heads up, you're going to be like, Godfather, <laughs> when we get to that question. And something about films, I don't know, I have this a bit with literature as well, is that I, I feel a bit embarrassed about all the classic films that I haven't watched. And a part of me feels like it would be so embarrassing for a woman of 31 to now be like, oh, I'm going to, like, it's something quite cringe about me, like, swatting up on Tarantino, age 31. No, <laughs> no, I'd love it. i say, go for it. It's not that, I, it's interesting you're intimidated by it. I've never known that because I I think that that film is so um, like it's not it's not difficult in the way that other art is maybe. Look, you can you can you can be on Hinge and and watch a film easy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, exactly. You can't be on Hinge 
and read a poem. Can you? <laughs> exactly. No, no. So there's nothing to be scared of. However, if you were on Hinge whilst watching a film, I'd be fucking furious. Yeah, film people are like that. <laughs> right. Film, just... film people film people do not like the old doing the Sainsbury's shot while you're watching them. They no, don't like it. That's outrageous. You should treat it like, like a poem, all right? Now, <laughs> let's get cracking, because you've at least seen some films, have you? Yes, I've seen some. Now, in this heaven, they're obsessed with films. First thing they want to know, they want to know about your life, but through film, your favourite subjects. And what they ask you is, what is the first film you remember seeing, Dolly Alderton? So the first film that I remember seeing, and then I, and actually I think I've worked out why it's the first one I remember, because I definitely had seen lots of films before it. First film I remember is Mary Poppins. Oh, and I think an absolute classic. What a and star. I think the reason I remember it is I think it shows the thing that killed me, my narcissistic nature. Because I think as a little girl, I remember that film more than any other film because it was the first time that I recognised my own life on screen. I mean, I've got a, one huge question. What? Who who was who were you in you Mary Poppins or are you Jane? No, or are you no, Michael? no. I'm Jane. I'm Jane. So okay. I'm Jane because I had. It's very flimsy. It's it's very tenuous. Oh, I love it. But I had. I grew up in London. Yeah. Had a little brother. My mum worked full time, so we always had nannies. My nanny had a, a bin man boyfriend. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> was also. Uh, my dad was like a slightly like a good-hearted but stressed out and bad-tempered man who worked in finance. Wow. Um, my mum was a kind of dotty feminist, yes. yeah. Um, and I think there was something about like what that film said because my parents, I think, were always pretty stressed out about us being like the first ten years of my life we were all with nannies. They, had, they didn't have a choice, but I think that they were kind of always stressed out about whether that was negligent and how that would affect our relationship. So I think there was something about like the magic world of the nanny and the kids that I found quite reassuring. And the fact that the take home of that film is that the parents, the, how much the parents love those children. So, yeah, I think that's why I remember it because I think, and also like we lived in sort of Northeast London and so much of Mary Poppins London, I think is how I recall London in my head, like, the kind of dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. And Can't it's like, for a child, it's like postcard London. I mean, what a start. <laughs> you've, just, you've just thunked down Mary Poppins as an opener. You're going to be all right. That's Do you a, like that film? Oh, mate, I fucking love Mary Poppins. Mary, Mary Poppins is a masterpiece. Uh, what bothers me, watching it again recently, is that the message... Because my sister took me to see the stage show to make a point to me that I'm Mr Banks. And she was like, you know, you, you, you work too much and you have to spend time with your kids. And I was like, I don't have kids, remember? <laughs> it's OK. But um, at the end of Mary Poppins, Mr Banks leaves the bank and goes to fly kites yeah. with his children. And then literally within 24 hours, someone from the bank goes, hey, man, great, yesterday, uh, let's give you a promotion. And he goes, oh, great. And you go, ah, oh, fuck, what? He's straight. He tried to get out yeah. and they pulled him back in. And that's the end. He's straight back in the bank. But now a higher, more pressure job. I think what you hope is that he becomes one of those 
men who can leave work at work, that he becomes... He learns to delegate. That's what the the takeaway. Yeah, yeah. Mary Poppins is that Mr Banks is going to learn to delegate a bit. Yeah. Did you see Mary Poppins Return? I did, yes. And I very much enjoyed it. I fucking saw it three times at the cinema. Great. And... The bit where people aren't going to get arsy about spoilers. No, you're in this, okay. Are they? You're okay. We've, there's a spoiler God, the in high low, The high-low listeners, there's nothing they love more than getting their ninnies in a twist <laughs> about, about us doing a spoiler about fucking Tiger King. Um, the, the moment of Mary Poppins returns, and I think this is why I kept going back to see it happened mm. in the bank that made that I found so moving and so profound that it made me cry every single time was when, what's his place, who played Bert, Dick Van Dyke, reappears as the old man. And even talking about it now makes me, like, choke up because I think it's the most poignant showing of the passage of time that in the first film, in that bank, Dick Van Dyke is in prosthetics and hunched over, pretending to be the old man. And then in the final film, he is the old man and he's 90 years old, tap dancing on a desk. I just find it, like, I think it was just such a clever clever move that cameo and he's in he's in better shape than he was as an old man in the original mary poppins yeah as the fake old man yeah i mean he's really like light on his feet as well yeah what a what a fucking guy um what is the film that scared you the most do you like being scared no i hate it Uh, and actually i'm i'm incredibly babyish about horror right and even thrillers and stuff i think i watched i tried to watch a horror film when i was at university and i knew i wouldn't like it i just knew i wouldn't and i'd always kind of avoided it because i think i just those images i think you have to be very careful about the images that you expose yourself to because there are like certain horrible images that i've seen in my life either like things i've sought out you know like on the internet or just things that you see in daily life or things you see on the news and you can't, you can't remove them from Mm. your head once they're there. So I'm very careful about what I kind of expose myself to. Then I think I got to university and I really loved the idea of being one of those like girls who loved slasher movies. (laughs) You just like sat with a Domino's, you know, going wild on the old garlic and herb dip and just watching blood spurt everywhere. So I did, I watched a very gentle horror film, I suppose, in the grand scheme of things. I watched The Shining. I mean, it's an, it's an absolute classic. You're, you're dropping big bombs all over. Don't worry, I'll let you down later. Okay, good. But I just found, I found it so terrifying. I don't think I slept for like two weeks afterwards I would have to, like, in the middle of the film, I remember I wanted to get a glass of water and I was so frightened about the old woman being in the kitchen that I made, we turned all the lights on and I made my friend come to the kitchen with, like, I'm so, I'm so not built for horror. And I think that's, that is the last horror film I've ever watched. That's amazing. It's a good one. Uh, What is the film that made you cry the most? I think the film that makes me cry the most even now is The Snowman. Bloody hell. It's so moving, that film. Yeah, it's really depressing. And it gets, it gets, it's so depressing and it gets more and more. When I first watched it when I was very, very little, mm-hmm. I cried so much, I vomited all over the carpet. Wow. Yeah. Vomit cry. Yeah, vomit cry. And when I watch it now, I find it amazing that I didn't have like an even stronger reaction because really that film is just about 
mortality. I'm just yeah. like, it's so it, it's, and there's no silver lining. Like it's so, it's so stark about the facts of kind of life and death, which is all of us die and it's really shit. Everyone you love is going to die. They're going to go, they're going to be gone. And all you're going to have, if you're lucky, is like lovely, is a carrot, is a carrot and a shit scarf. <laughs> And I just, it's like, it's so, and the fact that it's like such a cut to black, like it's such a like sharp ending. There's no moment of reflection. There's no one like reassuring him that the snowman's gone to a better place or that he might meet him again one day. It's like, truly, this is like the great tragedy of the human life is that it all ends. And then it's just, they go. Do you think the snowman got enough out of his, of his time on earth? Do you think he really he lived to live life to the max? I think he did. I think he knew what was coming, as well. So you basically, the snowman is like a terminal patient. <laughs> like he knows he's on a limited amount of time. He's making the most. Of it. He goes, we're going to go fly. Totally, we're going to go see all my mates. Totally, we're watching the snowman go through sort of Make a Wish Foundation. Yeah, <laughs> the snowman's going through the seven stages of grief privately he doesn't share it with the boy he's like let's make the most of this and he accepts it yeah but he's got a bucket list to work through flying mates what else does he do that's about it isn't it that's about it it's mainly <laughs> flying it's mainly flying which to be fair is on my bucket list yeah me too and also i think it does show why if he knew and the kid doesn't know that's why there is like such a fucking attitude to that snowman which is what makes it so joyful yeah <laughs> Yeah, the snowman notoriously has a fuck it attitude all the way through <laughs> the snowman. He's anarchic. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just, I, I think it's so moving. And I also, have you watched the VHS version with the introduction from David Bowie? Oh my God, I'd forgotten all about that. Yeah. Tell me it again. Can you act it out? Yeah, so he's standing, he's standing in an attic looking with with like really like I think it was like thin white jute stage stage like really bleached slick back hair and he's the older version of the little boy and he's it's so weird it's also very weird because David Bowie I think in the same year also did that bizarre Christmas duet with Bing Crosby oh yeah the little drummer boy yeah so I think he was like being into Christmas that year that was his Christmas year. <laughs> I think it was the same year. But yeah. so he's standing there and then he he's like, like has a far away look in his eye and he's stroking the shit scarf. Yeah. And it, I think it's only about a minute yeah. long and he's and like... And the carrot? Is the carrot there? Is he stroking the scarf with the carrot? <laughs> I think the carrot survived. Right. And it's, it's so short. He must have been like in and out, wrapped, Addison Lee waiting for him all within like... <laughs> 40 minutes and he just says it's like really nebulous he's like oh I, I love it when it snows here and it reminds me of all my winters that I had here as a child and and then he says he says the word snowman really weirdly he says it like it's his surname he says and I met a snowman oh yeah and he was a real snow and you don't understand he was a real snowman and then the tinkling piano starts and then he just looks out the window done that was a really, really good act out of the last beginning <laughs> to, the, to the snowman. The snowman. Wow. I think it's on YouTube. You can give it a watch. That's fucking great. 
So they brought him, they were like, this isn't good enough. What this needs is David Bowie in an attic. Yeah, and actually, I think I remember, again, this is a lot of speculative (laughs) talk, but I think I remember finding it so weird that he did it, particularly because it was when he was like peak, peak of his success. And I think someone who, who like had worked with him messaged me and said that the reason that he did it was one of his children. He did it for his children, basically. One right. of his kids. Loved the snowman. Loved the snowman. And I think was like, they had had a bit of a rift because he was working too much, like a bit of Mr. Banks style. So I think he did that as like a gesture to, to his child. as of, of like a... He did a bit more work as a gesture to his child. Yeah, he has a... <laughs> No, I mean, that's great. Do you, do you, are you, are you, (laughs) yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, (laughs) Nice surprise for the kid. Another day away from dad. Yeah. Are you a crier, by the way? Yeah, yeah, constantly. Cry everything. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Stadsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, what is the film that people don't like. It is critically, generally not acclaimed, but you love it. You don't care what anyone says. I have so many examples uh, (laughs) for this one. But the one that I think is like the most embarrassing to admit is uh, the Sex and the City movie, crucially number one, not number two. Right. Um, Have you seen the Sex and the City movie, Brett? Here is my truth. And that's what we're about, right? Speaking of truth. Yeah. I love Sex and the Sea. I saw the entire series, every single episode. I think it was genuinely brilliant. I did not see the films. And partly because I'd heard how bad they were and I didn't want to sully my memory of how good I think the TV show is. I've not seen it. There's nothing I adore more than a man who has respect for for the very clear icy niches within Sex and the City rather than dismissing it as, as, as just like something basic girls like. Ah, oh, Sex and City is fucking great. It's so good. So good. So funny. And also, as as you get older, I, I now I'm like, there is a Sex and the City episode to answer almost every question of my 30s now. The answer's yeah. there. Who's your, who in Sex and the City uh, is the best uh, boyfriend husband? So we, I, this has changed for me so much. I used to, I used to love Big when I was younger. Yeah. 
And now I think it's so symptomatic, so symptomatic of what I was looking for in a relationship when I was younger, because I now watch big and I think he's like so vile and not sexy, just like weird innuendos and cheesy dad jokes. And like, yeah, he's like a guy you'd find at a lap dancing club. Yeah. And like just a bit too obsessed with like cigars and Frank Sinatra in a not, in a not cool way. Mm. And like has no mates, a bit of a creep. And I thought that, but now, do you know who I would, I would just jump into bed with now? Steve? Is Smith Jared. Smith, <laughs> Smith. I just think Smith Charlotte. is the dream boyfriend. Charlotte? No, the younger, the younger guy that Samantha ends up with. He oh, just like adores her. The- yeah. Oh, I, okay, you can have him, but I, do you I, like do you like how I set that up? Like, look, Brett, I'm a bit fringy. I've got, I'm a bit. I like the. I don't like the conventional choice. I like the, the Hercules model, model. who who has <laughs> the least amount of personality of all the all the boyfriends <laughs> in Sex and the City. The one who's just pretty and worships her. Okay, what can I say? I get it. What can I say? Uh, no, but I just love how unintimidated he is by her. And I think that that's just a really nice relationship. Mm. I also have a bit of a soft spot for Aiden. Yeah, I think Aiden's I could great. marry an Aiden. Who, who, who out of the men would you end well, up? Well, I'd go, I'd go Steve. I'd go Steve or um, the guy that Charlotte marries, the lawyer, the funny Harry, ugly sex yeah. Harry. Yeah. So hang on, Sex in the City, the film, which yeah. I deliberately avoided because I don't want to sully it. I think you should watch it, Brett. Okay, all right, you can have it. Uh, Donny Alderson, what is a film that you used to love, but you've watched it recently and you've gone, ah, no, I do not like this anymore? Gone with the Wind's pretty tangy. Um, That's a a spicy meatball. Yeah, and do you know what? It's not so much... I just love Gone with the Wind. Mm -hmm. It was always, like, my favourite film when I was younger. And it's not so much the portrayal of slavery, the portrayal of racism, the, like, very weird gender politics in it like that is what the world was like and so I just don't think you can really take umbrage with like a truthful portrayal of of what the world was like then but what I think makes it uncomfortable now to watch is knowing that when they filmed it which was in the 40s I think wasn't it it yeah I think it was 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 it I think so it when when, certainly when it was filmed Mm -hmm. they were still living in a racially divided and segregated world. And actually, when you read about... Oh, it was 1939. Kind of... My apologies. 39, 1939. So that was still very much, you know, racism still was so prevalent mm. uh, during that time. And when you read around the film and how the black cast members were treated and what life was like for those black cast members after the film, for me, it then becomes so much more of a difficult viewing experience because it's not, Mm. it's like not a comment on a past world. They're still very much living in that world. You know, like the Hattie, I can't remember her, her surname, the woman who, she was the first black woman to win McDaniel. I think she was the first black woman to win an Oscar and she played, uh, yeah. yeah, she played Mammy in that film. And she had to like stay at the Oscars. She had to like stay in a different hotel. She had to sit at a table, not with the cast. She had to sit at the back of the room. 
uh, she had to, the, the most uncomfortable bit is when you hear her make her speech. I think it's been said that she was like, a speech was sort of written for her, where she, she says the phrase, or she felt like she needed to say the phrase, like, I hope that I continue to be a credit to my race. Like, Ugh. horrible, horrible, God. horrible. And, and then after the film, she went on to play like 90 maids. That was her career. So it's kind of for those reasons, I find it a bit stickier now to watch. I think that's very fair. Dolly Alderton, what is the film that means the most to you? Not necessarily because the film itself is any good, but because of the experience you had around seeing the film that will always make it special to you. Uh, oh, um, Hannah and Her Sisters... Do you like that film? I love that film. I know it's problematic to like Woody Allen films, but that is a really, really good film. I think it's my favourite Woody Allen film. Yeah, it's really good. Go on. I mean, I know it's problematic to like... I actually don't... I don't think it is problematic to like Woody Allen films of that time because I think if you were to... Look, definitely I think you can be a fan of Woody Allen's early work and also think there's a, there's a likelihood that he's... A high likelihood that he's... <laughs> a sex abuser and I think both of those things can can be true and I also think if we were to kind of wipe and delete all that early work of Woody Allen I think we're also wiping and deleting like the early careers of Diane Keaton Mm. and Mia Farrow and Meryl Streep and all these women who who probably haven't been given those like these kind of quirky oddball beautiful, intelligent, strange women who, other, you know, wouldn't have had those leading lady roles had it not mm. been for those films. So I'm just doing all that defensive preamble yeah. before <laughs> before I praise Woody Allen's work. Um, but the Hannah and Her Sisters, I think, is my, is my favourite. And there's a scene in it that I think is, like, the, the most perfect scene of all time that became very, very important to me when I first watched it because... It, it kind of, it's so poignant. Whenever I'm down, I re-watch that scene and I also send it to people if they're feeling despondent, which is when Woody Allen's character, who's been on this kind of personal mission to understand the meaning of life through the film, he becomes obsessed, kind of what we were talking about earlier, he becomes absolutely obsessed with trying to get the answers of whether there's a God, whether there's an afterlife, what the point of all of this is. And he he gets so preoccupied with it that he you know, he, he tries all different types of religion. He reads a lot of kind of theory uh, and he feels like his life, he can't really live his life and he can't be happy until he knows what the truth of this existence is. And he goes crazy with it. And then he decides, he decides that basically what he can deduce, he doesn't think there is a God. So he decides to kill himself. And then it's like so slapstick he goes to put the gun on his head and, and the gun, because of the sweat on his brow, fires behind him into the mirror. And he freaks himself out and has this like sudden near-death moment of realising maybe he doesn't want to die. So he goes pounding the streets of Manhattan and ends up in a cinema where there's like a really silly old Groucho Marx film playing that's really like joyful and loud. And, and he there's like a monologue in his head as he's watching it. And he basically says he just, for the first time in a year he stops and just watches the film and watches the kind of the joy and the frivolity of these characters and he realizes that maybe there isn't a god but maybe there's also a point 
in just being here and existing and participating in the world and life and participating without answers. And like, maybe, maybe that's a really precious experience. Maybe that's something we should be really thankful for. And I just think it's so profound and it means so much to me now. And I, whenever anyone's like feeling really, really depressed, I always send them that scene. That's fucking beautiful. I like that a lot. Yeah. Do you like, I'm glad that you like that film because lots of people don't like like that. Yeah. I love it and I love the ending. I love that final shot. I think it's great. Oh, yeah. It's such a great film. He's made some really fucking great films. And I think that is in the top five. Yeah. Um, what is the film that you most relate to? God, it's another Woody Allen one. I think the film I most relate to is Annie Hall. Here we go. That, because... Which is also in the top five. Yeah, I, I think it's... I think it's because I find breakups really, really painful and and difficult. I know everyone finds breakups really, really painful and difficult. For some reason, like loving someone and then not loving them anymore, I find, and like being really, really intimate with someone and knowing them so well and then that that Mm. being absent, I find it so, so unbearable. Like, I think I find it weirdly unbearable. Like, I think I'm such a baby about it. I find it like... I just can't accept it as a reality of yeah. this like human experience. I find it so unacceptable that we have to find a way to like over and over again. Yeah. Do like get through this. I don't know how, like, I don't know how we avoid it. Like not loving maybe I suppose, which like maybe I see the appeal of that. And I think that the, what, the kind of exploration of breakups and how we impact each other's lives mm. and what we take from each other and what we can cherish about each other. And I think that's explored so well in Annie Hall. Yeah, and we need the eggs. I think the... Sometimes it blows my mind when I think about ex, ex-girlfriends ex and past relationships and you think, when you, like, put yourself... It's like quantum... Life is like quantum leap in that you have if you have these relationships with someone where you're so intimate together and you're so everything that's like a whole life and then if that ends and then you don't see that person anymore and you don't you literally you were this thing and now you're not this thing and you can have another life you have like a brand new life it's like a whole new thing but there's this person that exists in the world that you you were in that episode of quantum leap (laughs) do you know what I mean yeah no I I think about this all the time and I think about like the the things that you that you like weave together mm. like the collective identity that you form in a two the like language that you create together the physical relationship you have with each other the memories you have with each other i don't think that you you unless you're a total psychopath like you can't ever replicate that with more than one heat like every time you love someone you do go into a different world and you do start creating a different mythology with them you do love them in a totally different way so I think what is so difficult at the end of a relationship is like that that world that you've created mm. that both of you leave, like what happens to the stuff in it? Like what yeah. happens to all that energy? Like what happens to all that love and that feeling? Like it goes somewhere yeah, and I don't know where. I would say I mentioned this scene in almost every writing, uh, anything I've tried to make, I'm always like, this is the greatest scene of that, which is in Annie Hall. The scene, he has a funny scene with uh, Diane Keaton 
with lobsters. There's lobsters all over the kitchen. I knew you were going to say that. But yeah, they have this yeah. moment and it's a real, it feels improvised and they're laughing so much and they're playing around with these lobsters. And then later he's with a new girlfriend and he gets the lobsters out and he sort of tries to have that moment again. But mm. it doesn't work with her because she's a different person and she doesn't have the same sense of humour. And, and I do think, I, I mean, I, I'm aware of it the older I get with people where you... You know, where you tell it, tell a story to a new person that you have told before, or, or even you watch a film that that once might have been special with someone else. Like all those things become like, are you supposed to keep them like, locked away? They were just for that person, and what's the fucking point? <laughs> I know. I know, and and you know, I'm so glad you said that about that scene because that is something that I I bring up that scene. Mm. A lot as well because I think it is it's so small like that whole both sequences together it makes up yeah. such a small part of the film but really it's like the whole heart of the film and I just think it's like it's it's such it's so the idea that when we love each other we kind of give each other things so like I think there's very there's something very romantic as you get older if you've been single for a long time that anyone who falls in love with me if I meet someone, I don't know, in my like early mid thirties, anyone who falls in love with me is, is falling in love with like five men who have loved me, you know, because those boys and those men were the ones who like helped form who I am. Like they gave me my favorite albums. They helped me form, like work out my sense of humor. They teach you about sex, you know, like the person you can see the fingerprints of, someone's past lovers all over them and there's something that's so difficult about that and so unromantic and then there's something that's so beautiful about that and so romantic that like we all give each other we spend our lives like building each other and then passing that person on and yeah yeah, I just I just find it all so (laughs) it all like so mulchy and upsetting and but equally like unavoidable Mm. um how you love someone and create that relationship with them and and then say goodbye to it, but also hold on, like you have to hold on to a part of them forever. And I think Annie Hall just explores that so well. Right. Dolly Alderson, what is the sexiest film you've ever seen? I loved your suggestion in brackets of e.g. Fifty Shades Freed. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, <laughs> not, not Fifty just, Shades just, Darker, Fifty Shades Freed. <laughs> Just as a side note, I don't know if you have this with women that you know. I I was blown away when those books came out mm-hmm. and the films by how many women who I think of as like quite sexually free and autonomous and and like explorative and wild really got off on them. They like really love, found them really hot. They love them. It's so weird, isn't it? Yeah. But it's like people that I think have like quite a like quite a vivid and varied like understanding of their sexuality and the sexual language like really got off on Fifty Shades of Grey yeah, really got off on some quite bad writing <laughs> yeah really got off yeah. on oh, that repetitive glass and stone metaphor <laughs> do you know what it is it's the Alexandra Petrovsky thing it's just like Stuff. powerful bloat with cash it's amazing isn't it that like so much of our sexuality like this is the thing that's so interesting about sexuality is that is you can't be academic about it you yeah. can't be rational about it it's just like something so instinctive and ancient in you that gets awoken often by stuff that really pisses you off yeah 
is... Anyway, so mine isn't mine isn't Fifty Shades right. Freed. Mine is the mine's the Graduate. Is it? Yeah, that's the sexiest film you've ever seen. I do you know what? I only watched it a couple of years ago. Yeah, and I I was really turned on throughout the really? whole thing. Really? Yeah. All the dynamics going on. Yeah, I think it's because. I think it's because the thing about sex that I've always found so interesting mm. in like art and in real life is is the power and control, and I think it's such an interesting examination that film of of power, and also I think there's just you know that that woman completely in her sexual prime because like women's sexual prime is in their in their 30s and 40s and sometimes even like right before menopause that's when women have like this oh, yeah. other huge so yeah because it's nature's like last hurrah apparently yeah. that you suddenly get just like really random like, pop, pop, pop out a last couple yeah yeah and that's so <laughs> but that you don't really see that like sexuality for for women in stories mm. is like always really young girls and actually every woman that I know the older that they get the more sexual they become and the more confident they become and the, and the less shy they become and the more they wise up more to to what actual female desire is versus what we're told by men it should be so women have this like great sexual maturation that we just don't see we never like that because we don't want to see women over 35 Fucking and actually, like depressingly, Anne Bancroft was thirty-five. Yeah, yeah. And I think what I liked is that she's the woman who knows what she wants. She's the predator. She is so horny. She like manipulates him so much. She ruins his life. She's awful to him just because she wants that D, and she wants to like coach him and teach him and. And educate him, I think is so sexy. And I think it's so sexy that like all we ever see is is like young ingenue girls, their lives being ruined by sex. Someone like chewing them up and spitting them out, humiliating them or traumatizing them or being violent against them. Like that's the story we see over and over again. She we never see a young boy that happening to them. Yeah. She ruins his life. <laughs> she pussy ruins his life. And I think that's fucking powerful and cool. <laughs> she ruins his life. Fwah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. That's fascinating. And that, that Brett, is what feminism <laughs> is all about. Let me just break it down. <laughs> and that is sexy feminism. Um, what? All right, well, there's a subcategory. God knows where you'll go with this. The subcategory is troubling bonus, worrying why don'ts. Which film did you find arousing? that you weren't sure you were meant to? So many. I mean, this isn't actually my answer, but I rewatched The Sound of Music recently. Yeah. Captain Von Trapp. Mm, what a powerful figure. Moody. So, hard but also to like thaw. very camp in a really fit way. Like snarly looks and withering comments and this like drawly voice and like... I just think he's but just like this weird alpha energy. Mm. He was 35 as well. That's weird, isn't it? Yeah. But no, my answer is the 1950s musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. That is a totally legitimate answer to this question. Do you you think so? Yeah, because, because, I mean, tell the listeners what Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is about. Oh, my God. I think it is the fittest film. So... (laughs) 
it's definitely a lot of it is hinging on the fact that Howard Keel is the is the male lead. Mm. And Howard Keel, I don't think a man has ever existed who is so much like essence of man, like Howard Keel. He's he's like he's got thick red hair, he looks like a lumberjack, he's like three hundred foot tall and like fifty foot wide shoulders with this like baritone voice. And he just looks like the kind of man who who like his sperm all like wield miniature little axes and wear flannel flannel shirts. So that's like already very, very hot. Yeah. He he seduces a woman. He asks a woman to marry him and says, Will you come live in my shack in the mountains? Fit. And <laughs> and she's like yeah, sure, just because he's, like, such a big hunk, yeah. Mm. And then she gets to his house, and what he hadn't told her is he has six brothers. And these brothers are all, they all are lumberjacks. They're all absolute brutes that just, like, love fucking chopping wood and beating each other up, and they're just horrible to each other. They're, like, disgusting. I don't think they have a mum, so they're just, like, disgusting, aggressive, nasty louts. Mm -hmm. And I just find that so buff, the seven of them. Yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Just rolling around up in the mountains. And then they, she tries to make gentlemen of them. Mm. So she... Good luck. Like, teaches, (laughs) teaches them how to dance and eat properly and dress well and be clean. They then go into, into like the town and they try and seduce these like seven girls as new gentlemen. But then ultimately they show themselves up and they get in a big brawl with the other local guys. So then they decide that what they should do is they should go into the town in the dead of night, kidnap these women. Mm-hmm. So there's literally a scene where one of them's like baking a cake and then she goes to make to let it cool on the window. And then you just see her being yanked out of yeah. the window. So they're like, all these seven girls are all abducted. And then they smuggle them up the mountains. And then they use noise to make an avalanche happen. So the women are literally trapped with them yeah. in the snowy mountains in their cabin for as long as they want them there. I think that is the horniest thing I've ever heard. I think it's so hot. And then ultimately... Yeah. <laughs> and ultimately... They all fall in love with these boys, and they all just want to stay. They all just want to stay there forever. Look, it's fucking obviously. It's like problematic, and no, I I think what it says a lot. It says a lot about how far we've come and how much the cultural conversation has changed. That the very plot that you've described um, fifty years ago was a musical, and now (laughs) is a horror film. Like that is interesting. That exact same plot. Now you go fucking house with his fucking horrific. Yeah. There's this man. He's yeah. got ax- his sperm have axes that come out of his dick, <laughs> and he <laughs> kidnaps these seven and locks them in a in a cabin. I mean, but all set to music. And the music is good. The, good. the songs the are is good. good. It's a great film. That yeah. is an excellent answer. And you know what? I remember reading Delia Ephron, Nora Ephron's sister, wrote this great book. And she wrote a whole chapter about how she thinks watching Seven Brides for Seven Brothers ruined her love life as a young woman. And I think there might be something in that with me where she was like, I just assumed that one day I would be like baking a cake and putting it on the windowsill and some really, really hot guy was just going to yank me out. Mm. She was like, I think I didn't go looking for love because I thought I would be abducted. She's just hanging around her windowsill all day. (laughs) Constantly putting cakes out. Nothing. Makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) No one wants to say. 
<laughs> My arms are right out here. Just grab the cake. Uh, right, Dolly Alderton, what is the greatest, objectively, the greatest film of all time? When Harry Met Sally, which I'm sure everyone says. Absolutely correct. Do you think that? I mean, it's certainly in the in on the list, and I'm yeah delighted. I think it's perfect. There's no no line out of place, no hair out of place on When Harry Met Sally. That's exactly it. There's there's just like there's every line is truthful or moving or funny. Yeah. And also, they're just great people. Like yeah. this is. Did you watch Marriage Story? Yeah. Something I found, I didn't love Marriage Story and something I realised at the end of it is I just didn't really want to hang out with them. Like, earnest theatre people who'd stand up and sing, sing Sondheim songs in a bar. Just like, ugh, give it a rest. But, like, with when Harry met Sally... Give it a rest, driver. Knock it on the head, son. <laughs> I think I just... They're just so annoying. Mm. Whereas I think in When Harry Met Sally, that's an example of someone just a writer creating characters that you just, you don't ever want to leave. Yeah. Well, uh, I like that very much. Although I am more of a fan of Marriage Story than you. I don't mind. I really, I don't mind a man singing uh, Sondheim's song at the bar. Because what I do like about that scene is you tell me that scene. I go, that sounds like the worst scene that's ever made. (laughs) But then I see it and I go, it works. Don't know why. Do you think it works? Yeah, I really like that scene. But it surprised me how much I liked that scene. Because it, I think your reaction is what I thought. Yeah. I would have, and yet there I was, moved. Did you like that film? I did like that film, but then you know, I'm an intimidating film buff. Well, that exactly that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, what is the film that you can or have watched the most over and over again? Uh, Singing in the rain, I think. Mate, now. That is the greatest film ever made. So good. That's so good. And I never, ever, ever tire of it. It stimulates me and entertains me every single time I watch it. Mm-hmm. And actually another age fact, Gene Kelly, I don't know why I find this so reassuring. I do find it reassuring. He was 40 when he did that film. Wow. I get that. And that just makes me feel a bit better about getting older. Yeah. He's so nimble. <laughs> and he had a cold. When they did singing in the yeah, room. yeah, uh, that's a perfect. That now that is a perfect film. What is the film? What's the worst film you ever saw? We don't like to be negative, so we'll do it quick. What's the worst film you ever saw? Didn't love Boyhood. Didn't love Boyhood. <laughs> Bet you fucking no. loved Boyhood. No. You didn't. I, I admired Boyhood. I was impressed by Boyhood, but I did find that I liked the boy less and less the older he got. And by the time he was a teenager, I was like, he's a bit of a dreary. Ugh. He's a bit dreary, isn't he? He was dreary. Yeah. Bring a bit of get up and go. Yeah. That's the risk you he take was... when you cast so, so early. <laughs> you didn't know what he was going to be like. Oh, he turned out to be quite dreary. That's a shame. That's 12 years down the he... drain. Because he was quite a charming little kid. Yeah. Yeah, didn't like it. I felt like I was someone was manipulating me to be moved about the passage of time in a way that really pissed me off. And you were like, have a look at Mary Poppins Returns and then come back to me. Exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Richard Linklater. Nice try, Sam. Uh, <laughs> what, was, what is the film that made you laugh the most? 
Dahlia would have said? Oh, I'd be so interested to know if you've watched this film, Bowfinger. Uh, yeah, I fucking love Bowfinger. <sighs> love Bowfinger. Why does no one talk about that film? I don't know. That is a great question. I, go, I, I made my nephew watch it the other day. It's fucking great, Bowfinger. It's so good. Why isn't it talked about too much? I never, ever talk to anyone who's watched it. And I think it's like the most perfect depiction and satirization and takedown of Hollywood I've ever, ever seen. It's so funny. So funny. And it's got an amazing physical comedy sequence where he makes him cross the freeway twice. It's such an amazing <laughs> scene. Like, it's really technically amazing and very, very funny. <laughs> And Eddie Murphy yeah, at his best. Oh, so good. Mm. And like Terence Stamp. Yeah. Mindhead. Like, ah. So good. And I think that there's that all the archetypes of Hollywood are explored just so deftly. Yeah. In that film. And the premise, the premise of it is just so inherently funny, which is that he has to make this action movie with a movie star who doesn't want to be in it. The movie star is hugely neurotic and paranoid. They decide to just do the film without him knowing, so characters just go up to him and say lines. And it's such an interesting comment about, like, what those actors actually do in those action movies. <laughs> I remember there's one line where it's like, he runs to something, he runs away from something, that's all we need him to do. We just need, like, basic reactions, and it's a perfect action movie. Yeah. Gotcha, suckers. Uh, what a movie. Right? Love it. These are great choices. Um, John Alderton, you have been, for someone who claims not to have seen a film, you've been excellent. Really. Oh, good. Really excellent. Uh, you've got, you've got 14 out of 15, right? Um, (laughs) uh, but here's the thing. When, during lockdown, you went on Twitter and you put in, um, in quotation marks in the search bar, Dolly Alderton, and you saw a lot of hate. None of none of the, which in fairness to the people who wrote it, they hadn't added you. They didn't want you to see it. They were just slagging you off politely <laughs> behind your back. They were saying she's not a non-fictioner. She's not, she's not a fictioner. How dare she? All of that seems not real. But she said it was real. Who is she? I hate her. What a knobhead. And you read it. And you had uh, EPN, Extreme Paranoid Narcissism, and you exploded from the inside and you collapsed face first into your keyboard where you'd been writing your new fiction. And and because of lockdown, no one found you for fucking ages. This is the dark part. It's hard, right? Anyway, I was passing where you're in, you're far away. And I was driving. In Devon. You're in Devon. Yeah. And I'd gone, I'd gone for a little stroll on my one form of exercise uh, in, in South London. And I walked all the way to Devon because yeah. I thought, oh, fucking hell, I yeah. need to get, stretch my legs. I got to <laughs> Devon, passing your place. I was like, what is that smell? <laughs> and I looked in and there was your carcass, uh, which had been left. Yeah, similar. I really hate this bit. I, I really hate this bit of the story. Yeah, was I? Did I look like the old woman from The Shining? You looked like the old woman from The Shining. That squirrels had come in. They'd been eating <laughs> on you. A bird had made a nest in your face. <laughs> <laughs> it was feeding seven children. Seven. It was trying to find seven brides for the seven boys that the bird had in your in a nest in your face. 
And I did want to move that. I'm respectful of, of nature. Yeah. But, so I got to move your body and bury it. But there's more of you because there's an entire family of birds and yeah. uh, living, yeah. uh, living in your face. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, I wish she hadn't checked Twitter. But anyway, here we are. <laughs> so I, I've got this coffin that was exactly the size of you, but not with all this extra shit. So I have to chop you up. With, an, with one of these axes that came out of the sperm from that fucking lumberjack. Yeah. And I'm yeah. chopping you up into little bits. I get you in this coffin, bits of bird's nest, all sorts of shit. Squash it all in. The coffin is ramoed. There is no room in this coffin, but there is enough room to slide one DVD in the side for you to take with you to the other side. And on the other side, it's movie night every night. One night, it's your movie night. What film are you taking to show everyone in heaven when it's your movie night? Dolly Alderson, go. When Harry Met Sally. Correct. <laughs> I feel like we could have saved a lot of time. <laughs> the coffin the coffin is ramoed. Yeah. I think we'll just be on a loop in my head now forever. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens if you check Twitter. The coffin ends up ramoed. <laughs> um... <laughs> Dolly Alderton, is there anything you would like to tell people to look out for or to listen to? Will you be doing more of your Love Stories podcast? Which I very much No. Like. No. Oh, it. thank you. No. Done. In the coffin, ramoed. Why? Because it was just too, um, it was just a cynical promotional tool. Oh, was it? Brett. Yeah, to promote everything I know about love. So. I feel I really won't. cheated now. <laughs> I know. I really I'm sorry. It. Oh, thank well, you. Well, it was like um, Love Stories to be buried with, wasn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah. Shame. It's almost like all of us are copying a mm. a really famous format. Mm. Anyway, what else? <laughs> Still doing the high-low pod-pod? Still doing the high-low and my novel's out in October. October, is it? What's it called? Yeah. Ghosts. <sighs> I feel like I should tell you it's not full of Ghosts. friendly ones. Yeah, because I know that you like them. I like a ghost. But they don't, they don't feature in this one. Mm, okay. Well, thank you for saving me the purchase price. Tony uh, <laughs> <laughs> Alton, you have been a joy and a delight. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your uh, uh, death. And good day to you, madam. Thank you. That was episode 95. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein for the extra 15 minutes of chat and the video of the episode with Dolly and her secret. Go to iTunes and if you can, give us a five-star rating and write about the film that means the most to you and why. If you have a look, some people have been doing that. Oh, it's beautiful. I love it. Plus, it helps numbers. It means more people can hear the podcast. I can keep making it more. You can keep drinking craft beer. We can all be happy forever and ever until we all die. Thank you so much to Dolly for doing this show. Thanks for being brilliant. Thanks to Scroobius Pip and the Distraction Pieces Network. Thanks to Buddy Peace for producing it. Thanks to Acast for hosting it. Thanks to Adam Richardson for the graphics. Lisa Lydon for the photography. Come and join me next week, where I haven't decided which guest I'm going to put out next, but I'm telling you what, all the ones that I've recorded are amazing. Whoever I'm putting out next week, it's another absolute bagger. I hope that you're all safe. I hope that you're all sane, and I hope you are all well. So, in the meantime... Have a lovely week and please be excellent to each other.
Brett, sometimes I dream of becoming an actor. Have you ever dreamt of becoming an actor? Maureen, what is it you think I'd do for a living? Never mind, sounds like you need the New York Film Academy. NIFA offers workshops, BFA and MFA degrees and summer camps in filmmaking, acting, journalism and more, online and on campuses across the globe. To make films alongside industry professionals, explore more at nyfa.edu. Thanks, Brett. Thank you, Maureen. Maureen, your Canva presentation looks brilliant. Thanks, Brett. That's because I used AI-powered Canva presentations. I just described what I wanted and Canva presentations generated the perfect slides. You can even make a talking presentation for people to watch on their own time. Check this out. Recording. 101 Reasons Why Beaches is the Saddest Film Ever Made by your neighbour Maureen. Is it easy to use? If you can use a computer, you can nail your next work presentation with Canva Presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Oh, thanks, my neighbour Maureen. Yeah, thank you.